Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Liz Lenevy, and today I'm joined by Amy Gunn and Elizabeth McNulty. We are going to talk about something that comes up a lot in our jobs that I know clients ask me about it when we have these types of cases. And I give the terrible but also awesome lawyer answer of, oh, it depends. And that is waiver liabilities. I signed this waiver before I went into X place or before I did X thing. Does that matter? Now can I not sue? And our immediate reaction is we need to take a look at what exactly you signed. But the question is, what power does the language in these waivers actually hold? And I was I was thinking about this a couple years ago. I went to one of those places that does the axe throwing. Do you know what I'm talking about? And of course, they make you sign a waiver because it's a bunch of amateurs throwing axes, throwing potentially deadly weapon. <laughs> I've never understood those places. And also, I think it was my nephew's idea. He just turned 14, and this was a couple years ago. Wow. And I think a couple... Axe throwing? Look, a Did couple... <laughs> probably, <laughs> and I would love to know how thick that waiver is. But it was really great for, like, aggression. Look, I had a great time. I have terrible aim. But there were a couple moments where I could see something going terribly wrong. Yes. Right. And we tried really hard to be safe. And luckily, we walked out of there without any injuries. Out of the group I was in, I was the only lawyer. So I actually sat down and tried to, like, skim through the waiver I was signing, at least. I remember asking one of the men there. He had a big beard. I just remember getting a really big beard, big dude. And I was like, what does paragraph six, what does, exactly does this term mean within this paragraph? And he just... I think he grunted at me <laughs> and I said, okay, I guess we're just, we're going to hope for the best. But I did, after we left, I did think about what exactly did I sign? What exactly does that waiver mean? And this happens in a lot of our cases where we have to consider what did our client possibly sign away as far as their rights? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And Amy, I want to pitch this to you because I know that this is a subject that you are currently considering? It's an interesting topic choice because I actually not too long ago had an issue come up. Actually, it was a a friend of mine who called and she has, we have sons the same age. And she said that her son was going out to a, a summer home or a vacation home for the weekend with a few other boys and a few other girls. And the parent of one of those kids is the owner of the home on a lake, I guess with jet skis and boats and all kinds of things, and wanted all of the kids to sign some kind of waiver or release of liability. And it was asking me about it. And I was the same way. I was like, I guess I'd have to see it because I want to say and have said in the past things like, oh, that's not worth the paper is written on. But that's not entirely true. It very much depends on the circumstances, what's being released, what the language is. But it started me down this road of what is the answer. So I spent a little bit of time on it, and I have actually a copy of the release, in quotes, that uh, was sent in this situation. So we, as lawyers, are used to 
releases after the end of a lawsuit. And it's they're page after page of all this stuff and indemnity agreements and releases of liability and all this stuff. And this is entirely different topic. So like you said, this is where you buy a ticket to something and there's some fine print on one of the on the electronic ticket or the actual ticket that says it's a release of liability. And what does that really mean? So in my endeavoring to help this mom understand whether to sign this or not, or to throw a baby fit or whatever she should do, I looked at it and it starts out basically just saying there's not going to be any alcohol. And I think that's good. That's a good line. Who's going to be upset about that? And then all the attendees, which I guess means the the children, are instructed not to bring any alcohol or illicit drugs. Also good. All attendees are responsible for themselves. That seems self-evident. I'm thinking that. So I'm, I'm still waiting for the release of liability, or they're also known as exculpatory clauses. It goes on. There's a couple of paragraphs about the chaperones or their property owners are in no way liable for any activity that the attendee chooses to engage. And I don't really know what that means. It's just very broad. And it just says they're not liable for any activity. Anyway, then it goes on to say the attendees are ultimately responsible for their actions. And again, I think that's an understood life. It doesn't mean there aren't other people responsible, but certainly you are. And I think the law recognizes that you're responsible for your own actions. And then the parents of the attendees are responsible for their children, again, I guess that's true. Who is signing this contract? Is it the children signing it? Or is it the children and the parents? So this, you've identified one of the things that to me makes it unenforceable. And that is the student, again, now we're, they're called attendees, they're called students, they're called kids and minors and all these different words that are used in this one page thing. But the signature line is student. So I suspect that the child will sign that. But the child is, in fact, a minor, so not 18. And is under the law, if you're not 18, you can't sign something. You're, it's not enforceable for a kid to sign something, an actual contract. So they have no capacity to consent to any of this. Then there's a line for parent. So parent would sign it, but there's not a line for parent on behalf of child. Again, Completely unenforceable. There's one paragraph at the end out of 10 paragraphs that talks about the undersigned parent. And this, it does say the undersigned parent both individually on on behalf of the minor child. So maybe that's enough. I don't know. If applicable, I don't know what that means. And the undersigned child do hereby expressly release and forever discharge the chaperones, owners, and all other persons from any and all liability and claims, demands, damages, actions, causes of actions, or suites, which is supposed to be suits, <laughs> of any kind or nature whatsoever, and particularly on account of all injuries, known or unknown, both to person and property, blah, 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 blah. Wait, so in addition to waiving the liability of the owners of the home, this parent is also waiving the liability of every other person on the face of the earth? What yes. does that language yes. mean? Yes, and not only on their property, but, quote, the property of others. So you see what I'm saying? Enforceable. So I tell my friend, girl, go ahead and sign that. That's all right. <laughs> if it's going to cause if it's gonna cause your child to be mad at you and you'd be taking a stand that is not going to mean anything because it's unenforceable, then yeah, go ahead. 
My favorite, though, of all favorites is by signing this document, I acknowledge that I can read. Okay. Period. Period. I can read. All right. We're getting somewhere. And as I said, this made me go down a rabbit hole, or I should say one of our law clerks go down a rabbit hole. So I'm like, hey, can you look into this? And in Missouri, there is um, a Missouri Supreme Court case from 1996 that is a backbone of this issue, and it's Alack versus Vic Tanny, for those of you keeping score at home, 923 Southwest 2nd, 330. And it goes through a contract where a guy had a membership at Vic Tanny, which is a a gym. I I don't think there are any more Vic Tannies in the world, but at any rate, they were popular in the the 90s. And as part of his membership agreement, there was a clause about release of liability. And he signs it. It had nothing to do with any particular activity, like on the day of or anything, but he was going through what was known as a super circuit, which was a program where you do an exercise on a piece of equipment, and then you run a lap in between. It's like a circuit. Circuit training. Yes. And, God, they had a word. My mom did this a lot. Now it's coming back to me. What about that? Nautilus. Anybody ever heard of Nautilus? I thought that was a brand. Anyway, that's an aside. <laughs> My mom, if she's listening, may remember that. So shout out to you, Mom. So at any rate, this guy is using one of the machines, perhaps a Nautilus machine, and it breaks, and he hurts himself, and he sues Vic Tanny. The retail installment contract, or that membership agreement, again, had some language about exculpatory clause releasing all claims. But it was the same size lettering as the entire rest of the contract. It was in no way conspicuous or bolded or a different font or different print. And that becomes important as we go through the case, because at trial, the judge allowed a jury instruction by Vic Tanny that said that the jury could find in favor of Vic Tanny only if it believed that when Alack signed the membership agreement, he had agreed to release Vic Tanny from the type of claim involved in this case. Um, So there's a jury instruction that said, if you believe that he signed this and he agreed to release it from this activity, then Vic Tanny wins. So at trial, the jury found in favor of Mr. Alack and awarded him damages for his injuries. And Vic Tanny had asked for a directed verdict based on the exculpatory clause, basically saying we need to win because this is a release. This is a waiver of all claims, and this is a claim, and he waived it, and we should win. And the trial court said, nope. It went to the jury finds in favor of the plaintiff. It gets appealed to the court of appeals, agrees that it was a valid exculpatory clause, and reverses the case. The plaintiff then takes a transfer to the Missouri Supreme Court, and again, this was 1996, and the Supreme Court affirmed the trial court's decision and the jury verdict and gave us some guidance on when exculpatory clauses, release of liability clauses, are enforceable. And the Vic Tanny one was not enforceable because it was not conspicuous, meaning this is a big deal. And for example, in the one page release that was sent to my friend, the only actual, quote, release of liability paragraph 
was the last one. And it was the same font, the same type. It wasn't highlighted or bolded or different, anything. So you could say that wasn't really conspicuous. Now, the difference is it's only one page versus several pages. So maybe. But it also, in addition to have... In addition to being conspicuous, it also has to be unambiguous. It has to be very clear what you are waiving. I would argue that that paragraph 10 that I just read a minute ago, too many words, too many commas, I don't know what it's talking about. And you have to be clear on your intent. Missouri Supreme Court said, we are persuaded that the best policy is to follow our previous decisions and those of other states that require clear unambiguous, unmistakable, and conspicuous language in order to release a party from his or her own future negligence. The exculpatory language must effectively notify a party that he or she is releasing the other party from claims arising from the other party's own negligence. So if the intent is to say, you can't sue me, if I have a piece of furniture in my home that I know is creaky and and in bad shape, and the kid sits on it and hurts himself. Unless there's a very clear waiver of liability relating to that particular action, it's going to be unenforceable. So I think we're back to if, can somebody make me sign something that releases that person from their own negligence? We're back to it depends. If it's very clear. The other thing, though, is... There's something known as social host liability. And this is like a dram shop issue that I kind of ran into. Uh, The dram shop in Missouri doesn't really exist to establish the social host liability. So this is if you're having a party at your house and you're serving alcohol and something happens that's related to that. To have social host liability, the injured party has to prove that the host provided the alcohol to a person who is visibly intoxicated or underage. If the kid goes to this weekend home and is served alcohol, then you can't release your liability from that. The host knew or should have known that providing alcohol to the intoxicated person could result in harm to others. That's pretty easy to, to, I think, to prove. And the intoxication of the person served was a substantial factor in causing the injury. There is social host liability in Missouri that that can come into play. You also can't release your gross negligence or your intentional conduct. And that kind of plays into this too. If you're in, if you're giving kids alcohol, that's intentional conduct and it can't be released by a simple waiver of liability. To me, it was an interesting review of the law because we do see these things that come up all the time and most of us absolutely pay no attention whatsoever to them. Now, Liz, you're different because you sat down and had a conversation with somebody at the axe-throwing place and tried to understand the intent. Look, my <laughs> law degree cost a lot of money. I flexed that <laughs> muscle a little bit. But I, I will say, the entire time I was there, I, I did think a lot about, because I, I, I had known generally, you can't waive your liability for extreme negligence or gross negligence. Correct. So I was thinking... Of, what would be gross negligence in a weird warehouse where they're letting people throw axes at wooden boards? 
It's all gross negligence. Right. I, I was think. like, so if I release too early and I hit someone, could it be grossly negligent of this axe throwing place to allow amateurs yes. to throw these axes in open areas? Because that's the other thing is yeah. where you're throwing them, there's no netting well, or anything. The netting is between the way it worked. If This was several years ago again. But there's the board where you throw the axe. There is netting between each of the boards, separate the separate lanes, like a bowling alley. But where you're actually standing to throw, there's no netting there. But is it not fenced to begin with? It's, it's not fenced. It's just netting? There's no lane Netting. But netting is not going to... There's an axe. Wouldn't it chop through? Was that grossly... I would say that's grossly negligent. If you're throwing something that has a sharp edge that can cut through netting and someone is going and, let's say, retrieving their axe and the adjoining lane axes them <laughs> that's terrible aim and what's the training that you get when you walk in the door anything the training that we got was someone showed us how to do it gave us tips on this is the right, right way to, to release and and this is the general motion of it and then you get to do a practice round and then you are released into your lane did they put on do you have to put on any kind of like safety no safety gear none <sighs> I will say I felt better that we were the only family there that day. We were the only group there that day. But I have to imagine that if it's really crowded, that could be a problem. I don't think, though, now that I'm you, – because you made me think about this, Amy, with the social host liability drink yeah. shop. I don't think they served alcohol there, which is oh, <laughs> so I think of them do. That's the point of – But I think other, yeah. Yeah, others of them do. Uh, that's why I read through the waiver liability and then the man grunted at me and I was like, I don't think this is actually worth anything. Like, I, right. think, a, I think a smart enough lawyer could make a case out of someone getting hurt here. And it's, it's, it is a little consolation, though, to the client that shows up at the door right. and we say, oh, it's not enforceable. Now, I know you're vastly injured, but <laughs> at least this release doesn't yeah. <laughs> prevent you from suing people. <laughs> so it's not much consolation that the release is unenforceable after that injury. Yeah. And I remember a couple years ago, we had a, like an amusement park case. And in this case, they actually didn't, I don't think they made people sign a release, but they gave you like a wristband mm -hmm. that basically said, the show that you were a paying guest, but also on the wristband, it said, we're not responsible for any injuries that you may sustain here. Yeah. And I remember my client saying, I got the wristband. I go, that literally doesn't mean anything yeah and it was funny during the trial they did not talk about the wristband at all except during her cross my client's cross they were like you got this wristband right and they just showed the picture i was like that doesn't mean anything it doesn't mean anything okay but it, it is a question that comes up often have i signed away too much and unfortunately you really can't get into many places now without signing something the part about your client coming in saying, but I had this wristband, I'm worried about whether I have an ability to sue, that's a deterrent. And a lot of the reason why this language exists, enforceable or not, is to deter people from seeking legal counsel because they read it and they think, oh, I guess that's it. I don't have any claims here. I don't have any data on how often that works, but I can promise you it probably works a, a good deal, especially if the injuries aren't that bad. They probably, between not wanting to deal with it and seeing the release language, they probably, it's, I don't, I'll just deal with it. So I believe a lot of companies and businesses put it in there for deterrent effect. 
The other context that this seems to come up, and it's not exactly the same what we're talking about, but adjacent is in consents that clients sign in medical malpractice cases. Elizabeth, do you have clients who sign consents that are worried about, I signed this consent, is there any problem with filing this lawsuit? Yeah, I think that happens a lot. And I think it's another one of those things that your friends and family are like, this happened to me, but I signed the consent before the surgery. And you just, I don't think those ever really hold up. Um, Have you had defense counsel show your clients in their depositions in med mal cases their consents? Yeah, every time. Every time? Yeah. And then what happens? Nothing. Yeah, I've had a few lack of informed consent cases or at least Mm -hmm. tried them, but I think those are really difficult considering that it's hard to show causation in those. But yeah, I but I also think this conversation highlights if you're on the other side of it and you own a business or maybe you are a, a very concerned parent that needs to get people to sign waivers, how important lawyers are and how you should hire one if you want to draft one of these waivers because it sounds legal zoom or whatever they got the language (laughs) in this didn't really do anyone any favors and there's a reason we have expertise in what we do not necessarily here but language matters in a contract so if you're considering drafting any kind of waiver for your business or whatever you should consult with a lawyer because it matters what you put in there and you can't just throw down eight different terms of art for what the the signer is and think that's going to stick. I agree. And I would encourage anybody, any lawyers that are listening, because I feel like people probably do get questions from friends and family informally about these releases. And my sense is, from reading these cases and digging into this a little bit, is, and from reading a lack, is they're not favored in Missouri. I'm not saying they're completely void, but certainly asking someone to release you of your own liability is not favored in this state. It can be done under certain circumstances, but it's not favored. And I don't know, maybe it's just the plaintiff lawyer in me. Should it be? Is that fair? I don't think it is. You just write a piece of paper and say, I'm not responsible for anything I do. Even if I've failed my duty of care to you. Even if it's an ordinary duty of care. Even in the sense of I was negligent, again, maybe it's just a plaintiff's lawyer in me, but it just doesn't seem like a very fair concept to me. If I do something that hurts someone else, I should be responsible for it. It's why we have homeowner's insurance. It's why we have insurance on our cars and our vehicles. And I feel like in this case where this, um, quote, release was asked to be signed, it just makes me wonder what the, I understand what the intent was. It's a very much, either someone's just paranoid, I guess, but it also makes me suspicious. What is going to be going on there? What is at that home or is planned for the weekend that would make anybody think that they need a waiver of li- of their own liability. And Amy, you mentioned earlier how these waivers of liability can can act as a deterrent on plaintiffs. I'm thinking about it the opposite way, where I think the threat of potentially being held accountable in a court of law should be its own social deterrent. Agreed. And so when we have these overbroad, incredibly vague, off-the-wall waiver liabilities... Is that now just allowing, is that giving someone carte blanche to 
act out and to be negligent and to forget their responsibility to not only the people maybe around them, but also to everyone else around us. And to echo what Elizabeth said, if you are going to have something like this, it does need to be drafted well. You probably should get someone who knows what they're doing and just don't Google, how do I leave uh, myself yeah, a waiver liability or that, I, I doubt that's even what that person looked up ladies thank you for another great conversation and thank you listeners for joining us for this episode and remember if you have any comments or questions please reach out to us at heels in the courtroom.law and remember new episodes drop every wednesday thanks guys bye heels in the courtroom is brought to you by the simon law firm At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, Feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.